Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. We are continuing our study nearly at the end. We are in Genesis 47, beginning in verse 13 tonight. Genesis is 50 chapters long, so we only have a few more chapters to go. We will not complete Genesis tonight. Uh, We will likely complete Genesis next time or the time after. So just a a few more times and then we'll be done. So if you remember where we left off, Joseph has gone to Egypt. It's been a couple weeks since we met last. So, so big recap. Joseph has gone to Egypt. Uh, he's made it. His, uh, the Lord has blessed him, and he's been made the uh, the prince of Egypt under Pharaoh. Uh, he is uh, the ruler of all of Egypt. He war- warned Pharaoh that uh, there would be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, and that's why Pharaoh promoted him to the position that Joseph now has. Then Joseph's brothers come to buy grain from Joseph because they're out of grain in the land of Israel. Uh, Through a series of events, Joseph tests his brothers, finally revealing to his brothers that he is Joseph and that uh, God has providentially brought Joseph to the land of of Israel, excuse me, to the land of Egypt so that he could not only uh, protect and provide for all the people of Egypt, but also for the chosen family, that is, the family of Israel. Where we left off last time, Joseph was, where am I, chapter 47? Uh, Joseph's family had settled in the land of Goshen. And now we are in verse 13 of chapter 47. Are there any questions about anything? All right, well, let's, let's continue on. Chapter 47, verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So let's pause here. What we're going to see in this, uh, the rest of chapter 47, before we get to chapter 48, is a promise fulfilled to Abraham. So let me actually get that promise before us so that we can see how God works this out. If you remember, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, and he says... Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So notice this, what he says to Abraham, which you remember, the the, the line is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who is also Israel, and now Joseph. So Joseph and, is, and the Israel family are living in Egypt. And the promise given to Abraham was, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. So the family, the Israel family, the Israelite family, has been treated very well by this 
Pharaoh, this Pharaoh of Egypt. So the promise that God gave to Abraham or Abram is true. So the Pharaoh is going to get very rich because he treated the Israelites very well. So continuing back in chapter 47, we read in verse 16, And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that all our money is spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we, and we with all, and, excuse me, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So the people keep coming to Joseph. These are the Egyptians. They keep coming to Joseph because they, they run out of supplies. So they first come to Joseph one year and say, we don't have any food. This is how severe the famine is. And Joseph says, okay, in exchange for money uh, or exchange for food, sell me your livestock. So they agree. They sell them all the livestock and they go and, and they can eat for that year. And they come back the next year and they say, okay, we're, we ran out of food. We've eaten it all up. Uh, let us sell, sell us sell you ourselves and our land to Pharaoh in exchange for food. And Joseph agrees. So Joseph brought all the land of Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you will sow the land. And, all the and at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So the Egyptians completely agree. All right? they're, they're not forced into this agreement. Uh, they don't try to haggle with Joseph and say, well, we don't like this agreement. Let's renegotiate. They don't try to do any of that. They're happy to enter into this agreement. So the agreement is they sell their land to Pharaoh. They, they sell themselves to Pharaoh, which you might call enslavement, but this is really kind of indentured servitude. And, uh, and then when they, and they're allowed to live on their land, they get to plant their vineyards or they get to plant their crops, grow food. And then once that food grows, they have to give one-fifth of that food as a tribute to Pharaoh. Verse 27, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were one hundred and forty-seven years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. 
So we close out chapter 47 with Israel, Jacob, making his son Joseph swear to him that uh, once he dies in the land of Egypt, that Joseph will take his body back to the land of his fathers. You see this, this interesting ritual where he puts his hand under his thigh. We've seen that already in the book of Genesis. This is what Abraham did with his servant when he was looking for a wife for Isaac. And he made his servant swear to him that he would find a wife from his people and, and that whole story. You can go back and read it. But that, that hand under the thigh was uh, different interpreters look at that different ways as far as what that means. But when you get down to it, what it is, is they're swearing a, a promise. They're making a promise to say, I swear that, that I, will, I will do what, what we say, that, that I will in this particular circumstance. Joseph is promising his father that he will bring his father back home after his father dies and bury him uh, with his people. So beginning in chapter 48, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, Manasseh is the older son and Ephraim is the younger son. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered, the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, where there was still some distance to go from Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So we see a couple things going on here. <clears throat> First of all, Israel claims Joseph's two eldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, he claims them as his own. Now, the reason he gives is he says, Reuben, well, he'll, he'll actually fill this out in, in chapter 49. We'll see why he does this when he gives the blessings. But just as a, as a, as a quick spoiler, tease, this is what we're going to see. Uh, Reuben was the firstborn, the oldest of Israel. But due to his uh, promiscuous life, uh, he forfeited the right to be the firstborn. So what is happening here is Joseph, Joseph's sons are taking Reuben's position as the firstborn. So the birthright is passing not to Reuben, which is Israel's oldest son, not passing to Joseph, but rather passing to Joseph's son. So he's adopting Joseph's sons. His, this, so Israel's grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, he's adopting them as his own, and he's going to treat them like the firstborn. Now this honors Joseph greatly. And if you'll remember, who, who was Joseph's mom? Uh, Rachel. Rachel. So Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel, who was the beloved wife of Israel. Reuben is the firstborn of all the brothers, born of Leah, who was the unloved wife of Israel. So Joseph is like, 
I can't remember what number son he is in the timeline, but he's not the first or second or third or fourth. He's like the fifth or sixth or something. I can't remember exactly. He's, he's, he's down there. Um, this is a great honor given to, to Joseph because not only does Israel love Joseph because he's the son of his beloved wife, Rachel, but also Joseph has acted like the firstborn. The firstborn is the one in the family who is the leader of the family, the one who takes care of the family. And this is exactly what Joseph has done. You know, not by Joseph's choice, mind you, uh, but by God's providence. And Joseph was sold into slavery and wound up in Egypt and God providentially brought him to this place where Joseph was set up to take care of his family, acting like the firstborn. So that's why... Uh, that's why Israel adopts Joseph's two sons as his own, and and they will actually be counted as tribes when when the tribes are are dispersed, the twelve tribes. So Joseph is not referred to again. I mean, he is as a person, but there's no tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of Reuben. There's a tribe of Judah. There's a tribe of Naphtali. There's all, all the other brothers will have progeny that comes from them, which become the tribes of Israel. Joseph is never named. Rather, his sons are named. So the tribe of Ephraim becomes the chief tribe in the north. The tribe of Judah becomes the chief tribe in the south. Even so much to the point that sometimes Ephraim is referred to collectively as all the tribes, of all the northern tribes, and Judah is referred to collectively as, as all the southern tribes. So, questions about that before we move on? No, I think it's kind of sad that Rachel was just buried on the side of the road when, when he, he loved her so much. Well, notice where he buried her. Yes, yeah, close to it. Yeah. He, he buried her in, in Ephrath, which is, there's, a, there's a, a parenthetical note that is Bethlehem. So, Rachel is buried in Bethlehem. Now, at this time in Genesis 48, Bethlehem isn't a big deal at all. <laughs> it's just another town. Uh, however, as we move forward in the timeline, you remember Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. And when, uh, when Herod, when Herod, uh, evil, uh, the evil Herod, he kills all the, all the, all the young boys, two years old and younger, um, the holy innocents. There's a quote in, in the gospel that, that says, uh, behold, Rachel's weeping for her children. It's actually a callback to one of the prophets because this was prophesied that that this that an evil man like Herod would would kill the children. Rachel weeping for her children, and it makes sense because that's where Rachel's buried. So Bethlehem is is known as as this this great wonderful. Well, it's not really a great nor a wonderful place, but but that's it's 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 got this sort of holiness tied to it because that's where Rachel rests. Continuing on in verse eight. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Whose are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Joseph took them both, Ephraim, in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. 
So let's pause to see, see what we just read. So he's got two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is positioned on Joseph's left, Israel's right. So Joseph and his dad are looking at each other. Israel, Jacob, he's got two names. I keep going back between Jacob and Israel. But yeah, Israel can easily reach out his right hand and put his hand on Manasseh's head while also extending his left hand to put his hand on Ephraim's head. Manasseh, being the oldest, would receive the right hand, which is the more important one, and Ephraim, being the younger one, would receive the touch from the left hand. Verse 14, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim. Uh-oh, that's backwards. Ephraim was the younger, and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. So Israel crosses his arms and lays hands on him kind of in this X shape and does it. So it's very purposeful on Israel's part. The Bible's telling us this because it wants us to know this wasn't by accident that this was done. Israel is purposely crossing his hands and, and doing what he's about to do. Uh, verse 15, And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my father, my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So quite a lovely blessing from your great-grandfather. No, excuse me, your grandfather. Your grandfather. Notice in verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. He's still referring to God there. It's the angel of the Lord that we've met many times throughout the book of Genesis. And I've made the argument several times that the angel of the Lord is the son of God or God the son who becomes incarnate as Jesus Christ. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. So that's going to become a blessing in the land of Israel. May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh because they were so blessed. Now, the irony is not the right word, but the congruence perhaps is a better word of what is happening is, is uh, I, I want to point out. Uh, remember who Jacob was. Who was Jacob's brother? Ooh, reaching, reaching way back in the back of our minds from several, several months ago. Jacob was born to Isaac and Rebekah, and his twin brother was Esau. Remember, Jacob was a twin. And the, the prophecy given to his mother, Rebekah, when they were fighting in the womb, if you remember, they were fighting in the womb, and Rebekah goes to inquire of the Lord as to why her children are fighting in the womb. The prophecy given to her is that the older shall serve the younger that the younger son would actually be promoted above the older. And that happened in Jacob's life, right? Jacob was the younger of the two twins. Esau was his older son. But Jacob, if you remember, Esau has this, you know, he's ruled by his passions. He sells his birthright for, for a bowl of red stew. He does all these, all these really stupid, idiotic things. And, uh, and so Jacob, 
uh, takes over as, as the status of firstborn, even though he's not actually the firstborn. Um, Esau came out first, so that technically makes him the firstborn. But, uh, but Jacob has the status of firstborn, meaning he, he's the leader of the family. And the covenant promises pass from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob, not to Esau. So here we see Jacob again uh, continuing this, this, this prophecy that the older, not the older shall serve the younger, but that the younger shall, shall be greater than the older in the form of uh, Joseph's sons. That Ephraim, who is the younger of the two, will actually be the greater of the two. Now, let me quickly <laughs> turn to 1 Chronicles 5.1 to fill out this story just a little bit. I told you about Reuben and why he is not treated as the firstborn. And we'll get to him when we get to chapter 49. But I just want to read from 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be en enrolled as the oldest son, and it continues on. So here's the explanation in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 for what we are seeing playing out in Genesis chapter 48. That because of Reuben's sin, he's disqualified from having that status as firstborn son, and all the responsibilities that go with being the firstborn, and that passes instead to Joseph's children, to uh, Ephraim specifically, to Ephraim and Manasseh. All right, continuing on in verse, uh, the last part of verse 20, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So there's a promise of a certain piece of land that uh, Israel has reserved for Joseph and his family when they get back to, into the land of Egypt. All right, that closes up chapter 48. Continuing on to chapter 49, this is the, the blessings that Joseph, excuse me, blessings where Jacob blesses all of his sons. He knows he's about to die, so he calls all of his sons in and he gives them each a blessing of sorts. Some of these may not sound like blessings. Some of these might actually <laughs> sound kind of harsh, but uh, they are all very curious. So let's jump into chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assembled, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. So what he's going to do is he's going to go through birth order from the oldest to the youngest. And he's going to give each one a blessing slash prophecy of sorts. We're going to begin with Reuben. We've talked already a couple times about Reuben's great sin. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. <laughs> you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Stop right there. Do you remember what he's talking about? He's talking about the incident in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. 
let's go read Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, to see what Reuben did that disqualifies him from the status of firstborn. And I need to talk about what firstborn means and what's expected of the firstborn as well. I'll get to that in just a minute. But let me read Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. When Israel lived in that land, Reuben, there's the firstborn, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. We'll stop right there. So Reuben is shacking up with Israel's woman, and he does not like that. So you have to remember, Israel had several wives and several concubines. He had, first of all, his wives, Leah and Rachel, and then he had two concubines with Leah and Rachel. Zilpah was Leah's servant, and he had Gad and Asher through Zilpah. Bilhah was Rachel's servant, and he had Dan and Naphtali through Bilhah. Reuben, who was born of Leah, goes and lays and has relations with Bilhah, Rachel's servant which is his father's concubine. Now, what is going on with this story? This is much more than the sexual exploitations of a young man who doesn't know any better. In fact, what this is, is, the, is a um, intentional overthrowing of dad's power. Uh, we've actually seen this a couple times already, or we've seen this at least once already in Genesis, but it happens a couple times in the Old Testament. When a man would take for himself one of his father's wives or one of his father's concubines, that was understood culturally as a grab for power, a coup d'etat, if you will. The idea is if you can make a claim to your dad's harem or your dad's wives, then you can make a claim to your dad's authority. And so this is an intentional overthrowing of dad's power. That's what Reuben was doing when he slept with Bilhah. That wasn't simply a, I'm young and I'm stupid and I'm foolish and I got to go sow my wild oats and, oh, here's a, here's a woman who's nuts. It's much more than that. We saw this already with the story of Noah and his son Ham. If you remember, gosh, this was probably over a year ago we looked at this. Ham in Genesis chapter 9 the text says he exposed his father's nakedness. That's what it says. He exposed his father's nakedness. Now, I argued when we when we read through Genesis chapter 9 that I, I believe, based on the book of Leviticus and a couple places of Deuteronomy, that exposing your father's nakedness means sleeping with your father's wife. Because when you expose the nakedness of your wife, you ex expose the nakedness of your father's wife. It's a Hebraism that says you expose your father's nakedness. So I think what's going on in Genesis 9 is Ham is actually sleeping with Noah's wife. If that's true, then what that is is a claim to Noah's power. He's trying to overthrow his dad and take the family for himself and rule, his and rule the family with him in charge instead of his dad in charge. Uh, the other two brothers... Uh, Noah's other two sons, Shem and Japheth, do everything they can to rectify the situation by covering uh, the appropriate people that need to be covered. When Noah wakes up, he sees what has happened and he curses Canaan, not Ham. Not the one who committed the crime, but Canaan. Canaan is Ham's son. 
So we're not sure what how much time elapses there. It could be that Canaan was the was the progeny of the unholy union between Ham and Noah's wife. We're not really sure. The, the, the Bible doesn't spell it out exactly for us. But uh, it is interesting that it is Canaan, Ham's son, who is cursed uh, because of the sin of Ham. Um, and I, I believe what is going on there, as I've just said, is Ham is, is uh, trying to overthrow his, his dad and, and take authority for himself for the family. We see this happening again with King David's son. Uh, if you go forward in the timeline to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 16, you learn that uh, David has a son who's quite rebellious named Absalom. And one of the things that Absalom does in his vie for power and his coup d'etat to try to take over his dad's throne is he sleeps with all of his dad's concubines. And he does this publicly in the land of Israel. It's actually suggested to him by one of his counselors, hey, if you really want to show the people of Israel that you have more power than your dad, you go sleep with all of his concubines. And that shows everyone that, that you are making a claim for the throne. You know, the idea is if you can make a claim to the king's harem, then you can make a claim to the king's throne. He has no power over you and you, you can overthrow him that way. That's exactly what Absalom does. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 15 to 23, if you want to go read that later. So this was an unfortunately somewhat common thing that people would do in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, this is a way that you would try to overthrow your dad and, and take his power and, and rule. And it appears that's exactly what Reuben did to Israel when he slept with Bilhah. So because of Reuben's sin, he is disqualified from the status of firstborn. Now, let me talk about what status of firstborn is. So Reuben is biologically the firstborn, right? That means he was born first out of all of his brothers. But there's also a status of firstborn. The firstborn was expected to be the leader of the family. The firstborn was expected to... Uh, to make sure the family is taken care of after, after dad gets old and dies. The firstborn was also given an extra portion in the inheritance. He was given a double portion in the inheritance rights. So he would get more than everyone else. And, and with the idea of him getting more than everyone else, is he, would then, he, he would get his share and then he would make sure that all the other shares of inheritance were evenly distributed the way that they needed to be distributed. And he would take care of his family that way. Those are all the responsibilities of a firstborn. Now, Reuben has lost all of those responsibilities because of his sin. As we read, those responsibilities actually pass to Ephraim, 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Ephraim is Joseph's son. Okay? Are we following along? I know I've thrown a lot of names at you guys. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big, complicated family. All right, so continuing on in, in chapter 49, verse 5, we're going to look at Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So what did Simeon and Levi do? Well, if you remember, in Genesis 34, their sister, Dinah, was raped by the prince of Shechem. She was out with all the other ladies in the area, and the prince of Shechem saw her 
And he took her for himself and he forced himself upon her, bringing uh, a huge dishonor to her and to the family. At that time, Jacob, Israel, who is Dinah's father, did not bring about a resolution to Levi and Simeon's, uh, what, what they thought a resolution should be had. The prince of Shechem falls in love with Dinah and he says, I want to marry her. Please get, give her as, as, as my wife. And Levi and Simeon step in and say, here's what has to happen, prince. You can marry our sister Dinah, but you have to become like us. You have to become circumcised because we are people of the circumcision. And not just you, but all the men in Shechem have to become circumcised. And he says, okay, if that's what it takes, that's what I'll do. So he is circumcised and all the men are circumcised. And as the story goes, like three days later, as they were sore, the text says, as they were sore from their circumcision, that's when Levi and Simeon go in to the land and they slaughter all the men. They slaughter all the men because they can't get up and fight because they've just recently been circumcised and are feeling that pain. So Simeon and Levi use the covenant sign of circumcision in a disingenuous way by bringing it upon these, uh, these Shechemites and using it as a means to kill them, uh, bringing pretty horrible dishonor to the, the covenant sign of circumcision itself. So Simeon and Levi are brought up here and they are said that uh, for their anger, they killed men and in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. That's all referring to what they did when their sister Dinah was raped. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And that will happen as they move forward. When the tribes are allotted, the tribe of Simeon and the tribe of Levi aren't geographically close to each other. So I think the idea is if we put these, if we put these tribes next to each other, they're just going to cause problems because they're kind of brawlers in that way. Verse 8. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time with Judah. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So Judah is going to be the last person we look at tonight and we'll continue up next week. We'll continue next time with Zebulun. But like I said, we want to spend some time with Judah. That's why he's, he's going to be the last guy that we look at because there's a lot to say about Judah. So if you remember the first four sons, Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, and now Judah. Reuben, lost, Reuben, because of his sin, lost the, the right to be the firstborn. That passes now to Ephraim, Joseph's son. Uh, Simeon and Levi, because they're brawlers and violent men, are, are not honored as well. So then every So now it's Judah. Judah, we have seen in the past, has made some mistakes, but he repented of his mistakes. Do you remember the Tamar situation? Judah and Tamar, which happened just a handful of chapters ago. That's a, a prostitute that he went into. That's the prostitute situation we talked about. And, uh, but it was also Judah who, when, when Joseph is still disguised, when they don't know that it's Joseph and Joseph is, is, is testing his brothers, 
it's Judah who stands up to uh, to offer the great. Uh, I want to get this right. Let me let me let me say this. Verse thirty three of chapter forty four, where Judah intercedes for Benjamin and basically says, "Take me instead of Benjamin." Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So even though Judah makes a lot of mistakes along the way, even though Judah has this relationship with the prostitute, Tamar, uh, who's actually not a prostitute, but she was pretending to be a prostitute in that story, he proves that he is that, that he's repentant. He's, he proves that he's grown, that he's matured since that time, and that he intercedes for Benjamin, uh, which we just read. So Judah turns out to be a good guy. He's not a scoundrel like his three older brothers. Now let's read this, let's read this prophecy again because there's a lot going on. Jesus Christ comes from the tribe of Judah. So a lot of the prophecy given over Judah from Jacob's hand is actually about Jesus down the road. He's talking about his great 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 grandson, the man who will be Jesus the Messiah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here we see that Judah is a lion's cub. So that lion imagery is already associated with Judah. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Verse 10, this one's really important. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Let's pause there. What's a scepter? Mm-hmm. Who carries scepters? Uh, leaders. Kings. Yes, leaders. Kings especially. This is a kingly instrument. This is the staff that the king holds. So he is saying, Judah, from you, kings will come. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now he's saying, there will be a line of kings that comes from Judah. We know that the king, the very first king of Israel, is not from Judah. The very first king of Israel is a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul. However, Saul was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and so he's dealt with. And then the next king is from the tribe of Judah, the Davidic kingdom, David. David is, is made the king after Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read that God visits David... And because of David's great faithfulness, God promises David that there will always be a person from your line that rules on the throne of Israel. Your kingdom shall not end, David. Now, if his kingdom is going to perpetually exist, <laughs> we know today in 2022 that there is no king in Israel. So how does that work? Was God wrong? When he said, David, there will always be someone from, from your line that sits upon the throne of Israel. Is there a king in Israel? Nope. Was God wrong? Absolutely not. 
because God is talking about not only David, but Solomon and those who come after him, culminating in Jesus. The throne of Israel is the heavenly throne room. Jesus is the king. He is the king who comes from David. He is the king who comes from Judah, the tribe of Judah. But he's not only the king of Israel, he's the king of the whole world. So the kingdom has expanded from Israel to include all nations, tribes, and tongues. And Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. But he is in the bloodline from David, so he is appropriately the Davidic, meaning David, the Davidic king promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Coming back even further in Genesis chapter 49, where he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. He's talking about, yes, there's a physical scepter that will be set up with, with the king, kingdom of David. But in a spiritual sense, the scepter is never going to depart because there's always going to be a king in the person of Jesus Christ who now rules and reigns. So this is pointing towards, towards the Messiah. This is pointing way down the timeline, looking forward to Jesus Christ, who will be the king from the lion, from the tribe of Judah. He will be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And next we come to this interesting verse. So this is the middle of verse 10. The ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Your versions may read until he comes to Shiloh or something like that. Something about Shiloh. Okay. So the reason, do I have enough time to go down this rabbit hole? I'll quickly go down this rabbit hole and see if I can explain why some versions say until he comes to Shiloh or until tribute comes to him. So if you look down, you probably have a, a note at the bottom of your Bible. And depending on the Bible you read, either in the text, it's going to say what I just said until tribute comes to him. And then the note at the bottom will say something about Shiloh, you know, until Shiloh comes, or it'll be the opposite. You'll have Shiloh in the text. And then the note at the bottom will say something like until tribute comes to him. Okay. So biblical scholars understand that there's a, there's a, a Hebrew issue here in the original language. Hebrew was originally written without vowels. It is consonants only. As you know, vowels are very important. If you put the wrong vowel in, 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 a, in the wrong word, you can have a completely different word, right? Bitter, batter, butter, better. B-T-T-R is common for all those four words, but just changing a vowel can completely change the, 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 the word itself. So in all of the oldest manuscripts, all the oldest Hebrew manuscripts to include manuscripts that were translated from the Hebrew, like the Greek Septuagint, the Syriac, and the Targums, it follows the, the until he comes to whom it belongs or until tribute comes to him. So the question is, how on earth do we get the word Shiloh in here? Well, that's actually the letters could... The letters could also be translated Shiloh if you add the different vowels in there, okay? <laughs> Does that make sense? So the consonants are, in English, S-H-L, Shiloh, S-H-L-H. That's not really what the consonants are in Hebrew, but I'm trying to anglicize this just for ease, ease of understanding. And, if, and depending on what, what vowels you add, you can either arrive at Shiloh as a place, or you could arrive at the word of until he comes, 
So that's what's going on. That's, that's the Hebrew little weird thing going on in this text. I'll tell you what the right rendering is. The right rendering is the way that it's in the English Standard Version because not only do I prefer the English Standard Version, but this is how Paul reads it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. I think I said that right. I could be wrong about that. Let's look at Galatians 3. I'll read it to you. Galatians 3, verse 19. Paul sort of uh, alludes to this. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to him, uh, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, etc. So the offspring to whom the promise had been made, until it comes to him, the offspring to whom the promise had been made. The promise he's talking about here is Jesus. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 is talking about about the, the, why was the law given? It was given for a time until the offspring came to whom the promise had been made. The offspring is Jesus. Paul doesn't say anything about Shiloh here. Paul's actually referring back to this text uh, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Um, I actually think a better rendering of it, which is a note at the bottom of my Bible, is until he comes to whom it belongs. Yeah, so let me reread this. Do you have the NIV? Yeah, that's how the NIV renders it. And I, I think the NIV renders it a little bit better than the ESV. So let, let me read this, and then we'll talk about what it means. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. The scepter, that is, until the scepter comes to whom it belongs. So it's saying the scepter will not depart from Judah until, and including, it arrives at its final person who's going to hold the scepter for all eternity, Jesus Christ. He's the one who holds that Davidic scepter because he is the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Continuing on, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So we see some allusions toward donkeys and foals. Uh, this reminds me of the triumphal entry. If you remember when Jesus comes into, and into his, his kingdom, so to speak, he comes into Jerusalem a week before his death. Palm Sunday is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And they say, blessed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What we sing every Sunday in, in our liturgy. Uh, that we, we include that in our liturgy because we're welcoming Jesus into our presence. And that's what they did. They put down the palm branches. They put down their coats. And Jesus came in on the back of a donkey, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and vestures in the blood of grapes. So here we have this blood wine language. You know, he's washed his garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes. So the blood of the grape is grape juice, right? Which becomes wine. But it doesn't say he's washed his vesture in grapes. It was really poking the fact of blood. Hey, I want you to think of blood, 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 blood here. Why do you want us to think of blood? Because Christ shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. This is what the king does for his people. The king offers himself on behalf of his people. Not only that, but of course in the Eucharist, we drink wine in commemoration of his blood, that we partake of his blood through the chalice of wine. 
His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This idea of, of wine and milk and the, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey and all this, you know, all of these promises of, of a kingdom, of a scepter, of blood and wine, all this stuff that's talking about Judah, who he calls a lion, a lion's cub, is really pointing forward to Judah's descendant, the Messiah, King Jesus, who was the lion of the tribe of Judah, who was the Davidic king, who currently in, what month are we in? May 2022, rules and reigns from the throne room of heaven. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This prophecy culminates in Jesus Christ. Any questions about that? Real quick to close up, to close up. There's a prophecy of a king here. Kings are good. You know, we, we sometimes get to 1 Samuel, I think it's 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 where they the people like demand a king from Samuel. Hey, we want a king to rule over us, you know, to go out to war and fight our battles for us. And Samuel says, no, 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 you don't want a king. And it's oftentimes interpreted that kings are bad, especially in America where we despise the idea of kings because we're a democratic republic, right? You know, so yeah, when, it, when Israel demanded a king, that's absolutely in line with Judah's promise that you will have a king. And it's in line with the book of Deuteronomy. There's a place in Deuteronomy when it talks about when you have a king, it's going to be a good thing. It's going to be a good thing because I'm going to choose your king for you. That is, you will eventually get to the point where you can have a king. The problem that's going on in 1 Samuel is the people are prematurely asking for a king. And they're not asking for the right reasons. They want a king to fight their wars, a king who will fight their wars for them. And so they get Saul, who causes huge blunders and is an unrighteous man. If they had waited for the king that God was going to choose for them, I believe they would have chosen, I believe that God would have chosen King David for them as their first king, who would have been a great king. But then continuing on, the culmination of that of the Deuteronomy promises and what we're seeing in Genesis 49 is King Jesus. So kings are good if you have a king who is good. If you have a king who rules and reigns justly and loves his people. We, of course have the greatest king rule and reigning over us, King Jesus. He's so good that he lays down his life for his people, for our salvation. So we'll stop there. Are there any thoughts, questions, anything like that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to come together and study your word. We pray that you would bless us as we leave, that you would watch over us as we go home, that you'd keep us safe this week. Strengthen us to love you with our hearts and mind of strength and love our neighbors as ourselves in all we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.